0: Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron.
1: Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is Todd. Hope you're all having a good summer. Somehow or other, it's late August and fall is just around the corner. And with that comes a whole lot of anticipation so keep us posted on what you're up to hope you can get outdoors however and wherever and whenever you can coming into fall Uh, this week I'm excited to be talking with my friend Justin Bubenek Uh, we're having a conversation about pride in the outdoors and an LGBTQ conversation that's really important and we sat down back in June during pride month uh, via a Zoom laptop call and Justin walked us through what I feel is an incredibly important and incredibly insightful conversation. Um if you're not familiar with Justin, you want to be. He's an attorney, he's executive director with the Wild Gathering, he's a Hunt to Eat Ambassador, he's former chair of the California Backcountry Hunters and Anglers chapter. And uh, he recently wrote a great piece, uh, I think it was through Project Upland, it was called The Juxtaposition of Pride and Hunting. And uh, if you haven't checked that out, you're going to want to check it out. Uh, Justin grew up in Oregon in a hunting and fishing family. He studied law and public relations. He was a legal fellow through the Clinton Climate Initiative, through the Clinton Foundation at one point. And I'm so thrilled to have this conversation this week and to hear Justin's perspective about how allies and how friends can understand LGBTQ concerns and access in the outdoors and how we can build community and how we can support our friends, how we can be more inclusive. I just love this conversation. You know, Justin brings his perspective personally about how he grew up and just has a whole lot of advice for us in supporting our friends and building a broader inclusive community for everybody. We touch on a great piece by Joshua Morris from Vermont. He wrote uh, outside online back in May, a piece called A Queer Hunter Reflects on Coming Out. And we use that piece that Joshua wrote as kind of a conversation piece to talk about Justin's experience and just offering some advice. And so just thinking through things like the language that we use and how we use our pronouns and just like simple things like that and so I think that this conversation with Justin, it's a candid conversation. He's very open and uh, I'm appreciative of his advice and I hope you can learn something from it. I sure did. And I'm excited to bring it to you this week. If you haven't checked out Karn's website this week, check out Jamie Carlson's recipe for chicken of the woods tacos it's pretty cool who doesn't love chicken of the woods tacos so he's always throwing down some great recipes on the mod carn site and uh, visit hunting camp live if you haven't mark's doing some great stuff and he's got some exciting content coming down the line on upland hunting and so you're going to want to check that out so thanks for joining us this week with this podcast. Let us know what you think. And I appreciate all the great work and leadership that my friend Justin Bubenek is doing to build broader, inclusive outdoor communities. Uh, So thank you, Justin. And here goes. Thanks for listening. Justin Bubenek, welcome to the Outdoor Feast podcast. How are you today?
0: Hey, Todd, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Excited to be here. I'm excited to catch up. Um, I think the last time we really had a chance to chat maybe was, I don't know, Pheasant Fest, and that was three months ago, and that feels like it could have been a few years ago with current events and everything. But how you been? Life's been pretty painful on a lot of different levels for so many people over the last several weeks. Um, How are things with you and your friends, and how are you coping?
0: You know, I, I have no reason to complain. Definitely in isolation out here in Denver, Colorado. Um, working from home, but I am employed and still able to get outside and pursue my passions. So I consider myself very thankful and privileged at this point. I know that there are plenty of people in this country and elsewhere that have it a lot rougher, but hold my own and uh, happy to still be able to be a part of society and uh, still contributing in one way or another, even if it has to be virtually now, more or less.
1: I feel so similarly. We're in New York and we've been on a, a couple of months between COVID and, and then, you know, the death of George Floyd and the situation with Chris Cooper down in New York and all the, all the pain that that's caused with racism and, and the backlash with all that. But, you know, we're, we're up in the mountains and we've been able to maintain our health. You know, we're healthy. We're working, and, um, you know, I feel pretty fortunate compared to so many other of my friends right now. Uh, Life is not bad for us at all. So you've been involved with a couple of, like, is it virtual, like, learn to hunt workshops, like, through Colorado Fish and Wildlife? Have you been working on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I've been uh, hosting – I haven't been hosting, but Colorado Parks and Wildlife has been hosting a series called Learn to Hunt – um, over the past I think this is now week number five or six that we've done it and myself Courtney Nicholson um, and a few others have all been participating in those I'm coming in it as the Colorado and big game noob perspective uh, I don't have quite as much to add as some of these people that have been big game hunting and in Colorado for years, but I'm happy to pose the questions and uh, share with people some of my perspectives as a new big game and Colorado hunter. And then uh, I've also been doing some workshops around fly fishing. I hosted a, it was a, a workshop with a group called Wild Diversity out of Portland, Oregon. that was focused on Uh, minority groups specifically, people of color, LGBTQ+, and um, people of all backgrounds. And I did kind of an intro slash survey of fly fishing and been doing some fly tying nights and stuff like that. So have been really, really, really encouraged by the amount of community and mentoring still that has been going on um, in the outdoor space, despite us being somewhat locked inside and restricted from being able to share these things firsthand with the people face-to-face.
1: I love the fact, you know, like it's with your, with the, the workshops that you're doing on the hunting. Like I just had a conversation with uh, another friend about this yesterday, but I think coming at that from kind of a new perspective, um, I think the people that are attending those workshops really benefit so much from that because I think they can relate like, okay, I share those same questions or yeah, this, you know, Justin gets me like, you know what I mean? So there's, there's that aspect of it that's I think so important and so valuable.
0: And there is something to be said, I'd say about like having particular expertise in one area of the outdoors. Like I think that I'm have a pretty good handle on most things, fly fishing, but I still feel like I'm a constant learner But at the same time, still being able to be vulnerable and, put yourself out there as a noob or a beginner in a space such as like for me, big game hunting, I feel like is really important in our space and to make sure that people understand, you know, you don't have to be a pro at everything or anything to be able to be reaching out. And the fact is, it's like, I'm happy to teach workshops and mentor people in some areas. And then at the same time, I'm happy to take the back seat and sit there and listen and learn in others. And I think that's something too important to grasp and understand.
1: It is, you know, and, you know, we're always trying new things. I've been trying to do some fly tying this year, and I've I've never done that. And that's been an exciting venture and had a lot of people that have supported that. It's been good. Um, So you and I have never really had a chance to talk about your outdoor journey, you know, how you got started with all of them, you know. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. You're executive director for the Wild Gathering, right? You're A hunt to eat ambassador, and you're a conservationist. And so, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to your outdoor journey.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, in addition to those things that you mentioned, I'd be remiss to not mention that by day I am an attorney at a law firm here in Denver. So, I do real estate law really have been doing a lot of concentration on conservation easements and public land protections and open up more access as well, Um, in addition to lining the pockets of corporate executives and the like. But I grew up outside of Portland, Oregon, in a town called Happy Valley. I was fortunate enough to be brought up in an outdoor family. My father grandfathers, they hunted, they fished, they fly-fished, they went mushrooming. Um, They spent as much time as they could outdoors. And I was brought into that family and I was raised to love the outdoors, to have a respect for the outdoors, and to use the outdoors both as a resource for personal fulfillment, as well as putting food on the table. And I think that I'm especially privileged to have grown up in that sort of household. I don't know how I would have came into it otherwise. I know that most of my friends, they didn't really hunt or fish growing up, but um, I would usually, I think that my first fly fishing experience was at the age of around eight or nine. Um, My family would backpack annually up into a lake in the Cascades of Oregon that actually my great-grandfather grew up backpacking into when it was around a 50 mile hike 30 uh, it was at least a 30 mile hike i should say i mean go up there for like a few weeks smoke trout, and then backpack back out with those to uh, sustain his family for some period of time. And by the time that I was a toddler, it was down to a three-mile hike, yet I definitely still found reason to complain about that three-mile hike. It was mostly uphill. Luckily, my dad would carry our raft for me and everything, so (laughs) I'd end up with a pretty light pack. Uh, But still... I'd make it up there and uh, my first memory of fly fishing was being tucked between my dad's legs on that inflatable raft with a fly rod strung out the back, floating line, a mosquito pattern on there, and watching these little brook trout just smash it on the surface. And I think that excited me more than anything I've ever done as a kid. And I was hooked from that point on. I made my dad get me a cheap fly rod outfit. I went to a fly fishing summer camp after that. And I admittedly absolutely nerded out on researching everything I could I took up fly tying. I was entering like the Oregon State Fair as a kid for fly tying and the youth competition and all that. And so that was a pursuit that I continued on through. And then another pursuit my family absolutely loved was bird hunting. So we did a lot of waterfowl hunting outside of Portland, as well as pheasant and quail hunting as well. So those were kind of my main pursuits as a child. And I'd say that that was something that stuck with me for most of my life. Obviously, as I mentioned, I really kind of did it in isolation other than my family. Once I went to college, not many of my friends really pursued those kind of sports. And that was just something I went out and did alone. And more recently... I've been able to find this community and been able to go out much more and get more people into these sports, find some level of confidence in myself to be able to teach these things. And uh, yeah, generally, I find that I'm getting much more enjoyment out of seeing other people get into my passions than I do continuing to pursue them myself. So
1: that's a great story. So thanks for the background on that. Part of the reason that we're here on this podcast today, Justin, is to talk about LGBTQ plus in the outdoors and to hopefully provide support for listeners to be able to some advice and some tips for, you know, how we can learn, how we can build trust, how we can have meaningful conversations and work toward inclusivity with all of that. I was reading, I thought it was really thoughtful, honest, really good article on Outside Online recently by Joshua Morse uh, from Vermont. Did you happen to see that?
0: Yes, yes. And I I love Joshua. It was an excellent article and very on point. So I loved it on so many different levels. I learned a
1: lot from it, from the perspective of him sharing his story about coming out. I think it was called A Queer Hunter Reflects on Coming Out or something to that effect. What I really enjoyed about it was the kind of the juxtaposition of like talking about the two communities that he's in. And so coming out, to the hunting community and some of the barriers and some of his concerns that he had with that. But also then like sharing those same kinds of stories with his community, with LGBT and other friends that don't hunt. So like the kind of the interface of both of those worlds. And the other thing I thought was really, really kind of felt like um, it, it was an eye opener for me was like how he explained that for him coming out was something that was like, I think he used the word like calculus or something, but like there's a calculus to that where it can be every conversation. It's like it's ongoing. It's like every new relationship or every new friendship. It's a process. It's not just like a one-time thing. What, what are your perspectives on all of that?
0: Joshua nailed it, and uh, it was so serendipitous that Jess Johnson, who I know you know as well, actually ended up connecting Joshua and I while he was drafting the article and everything like that. And it was just so funny how we came at our journey from two completely different places. He was a new hunter and was just getting immersed into it. And I was someone that grew up immersed into it, knowing what the stereotypes and having kind of a picture of what the hunting community thought of the LGBT community. And I mean, echoing his thoughts for me I mean, I really view me being a gay man as such a, it's an integral part of who I am, but it's just a small piece of who I am. And one of my constant concerns is that individuals will see me as a gay man and immediately connect the stereotypes that they may hold towards the gay community to me and start uh, placing judgment upon me for those. Um, So that's something that's a constant battle in my own head, and as Joshua put it, it really is a calculus in thinking about whether or not I am going to tell an individual whether or not I am gay. Because the truth is, I'm able to hide behind my privilege as a white cis male that doesn't necessarily present stereotypical Gay, I guess, characteristics that people would usually identify with the gay community. So if I'm ever in a place or a hostile environment where either I hear a negative connotation around the LGBTQ culture or community or any other kind of potentially bigoted language or uh, emotions, I'm able to play it off and just keep my identity concealed that I know is not a possibility for so many different um, underrepresented groups, whether it be LGBTQ, racial, or otherwise. I'm able to conceal that. And so it is a battle with me. I have to come out affirmatively and say that I am a gay man if I want to be recognized as one. And more often than not, there isn't a need to be recognized as one. So I don't find the reason to say anything to casual acquaintances or anything like that. But the fact is, more often than not, as I get to know people, they'll ask, oh, do you have a girlfriend, do you have a wife, and whatnot. And immediately, I'm then faced with the decision whether or not I just say no, I don't, and just go along with it and keep on letting them think that I'm a straight man, or having to almost correct them and let them know, well no, I don't have a girlfriend or a wife, but also I never will because I am interested in the same sex instead. Mm-hmm. And it's a very awkward conversation to have and it's I mean it's only, it's taken me up until the past couple of years to finally be able to kind of get over that. Hurdle and be able to stand up for myself and for who I am, and to be able to make that affirmative, like confirmation no, like I'm not a straight man, I am a gay man, and understanding that people may take that as potentially an affront or a confrontational kind of aspect, and just trying to be as delicate as I possibly can about it without offending or without making a person feel guilty for their statements. Because the fact is, I mean, the LGBTQ population is supposedly self-identifying at least around 5% of the American population, which rounds out to around 15 million Americans. So we are definitely still in the minority. So, I mean, simple things like just making statements or asking questions as to whether or not I have a partner or a spouse or a significant other as opposed to genderifying it or gentr- yeah, it, mm-hmm. uh, genderizing it. Um, maybe the proper way of putting it. But just trying to make gender neutral statements can go a long way for comfort. Um, and it really speaks to kind of what Joshua was saying, as well as the kind of repeated statements that I've been trying to get to. And also going to the point about the LGBTQ community and their acceptance of people like myself and Joshua as hunters. I mean, that was something that for a long time was a long and difficult struggle for me. I came out to some of my friends in my uh, sophomore year of college, and that was about 10 years ago now. And um, from there on, I kind of just kept myself and really did not have any LGBTQ plus friends whatsoever. I went to the LGBTQ center at NC State, um, North Carolina State, where I went to undergrad. And when I looked inside, I didn't see anybody that looked like me, that acted like me, that did the same things as me. And I didn't feel like I had a space there. And it was something that I think brought some negative feelings in myself towards the LGBTQ community that I see in other people like myself that are gay men that enjoy the outdoors that may not necessarily identify with some of the more quote-unquote radical positions of the LGBTQ plus community. But the fact is, through social media and through events like Um, the one that I participated in last year with Hunt to Eat called the LGBT Outdoor Summit, where I did a workshop on hunting for acceptance that really touched on exactly what Joshua wrote about and like the two competing thoughts and needs for belonging inside of each community. I think that being able to get exposed to that and see that there are other people like me out there has just given me that much more encouragement to be more vocal and to be more comfortable in myself because I understand that I am in a unique place where I'm able to use my voice and be able to get it out there and share my stories, even though it is just one voice and one story. And I know that each are drastically different. I think that seeing that some of this is resonating in people like me, and that my story could be touching even one person is enough to give me the energy and the courage to really speak out and speak up.
1: Yeah, you just said so many things there, Justin, and, <laughs> and so many, like so many important things. And it's great. And I want to continue on with providing some some conversation around terminology and gender neutral terminology. And there's, there's a lot of terminology out there. And like I can say, for me, I'm always trying to learn so that I can support my friends, you know, so that I can have more meaningful conversations, so that you can build toward inclusivity. And so let's, let's continue on that conversation. First, I think it's an interesting point that you made about you're in a position where you have to make a a decision in that conversation that you're having with people about, do I tell them or not tell them, you know, And, and so you're constantly filtering through that and figuring out how you're going to react to it i was talking to my friend david chang about brown folks fishing last week and Mm -hmm. and like we were talking about barriers for people of color that get out in the outdoors and so like basically what he said is there's you know there's like nobody that's holding a big sign out there that says you're not welcome but there's nuances and subtleties in there's like there's discrimination that's like undertones to that you know do you get that your friends get that? Are there ways that that's manifested where sharing some of those examples could help listeners understand where they're maybe even not intentionally, but they're just like closing the door for and creating barriers that shouldn't be there?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think that one of the most, uh, most prominent examples really is just when you do talk to a person and trying to get to know an individual. I think one of the things that really is kind of one of those undertones is when you immediately presume that I would have a girlfriend or a wife as opposed to a husband or a boyfriend or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's something as simple as that, that can really give me the pause, even as a person that has come into myself, I guess, and really understood who I am as a person and been more confident in that. But simple things like that. And I mean, fly fishing clubs, I joined a couple of awesome fly fishing clubs when I was in Southern California that are nothing but accepting. But I think it took me at least a year before coming out to most of those members and things like that, just because for the most part, they did just kind of have the very genderized and it was set towards always having women's clinics or men's clinics and things set up for wives as opposed to Mm -hmm. significant others. So, I mean, it was just as I'd say it was just as daunting of a task to be able to get immersed into that community for a woman or for a person of color or for an LGBTQ individual as anybody else. You look at these communities, you look or Google fly fishing. I mean, this is an example that I've brought up a number of times is you Google fly fishing and you look at the images. And I know that Google has their analytics and I'm sure that it gets filtered depending on what part of the nation you're in. But when I Google it, I get 100 pictures of white men on the river, and maybe 5% of those are white women on the river. And I look at that, I don't see anybody that I'd even consider slightly diverse. And it's like, what kind of picture does that paint of the sport? And I haven't done the same thing for hunting, but I can't imagine that it's much different. If not, it may be worse. So I think
1: it's worse. Yeah, I think it's worse. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's And it's the imagery that's being put out there where it's like if you don't see yourself out there doing it and you don't see yourself in that community, it's tough to be able to immerse yourself in it and feel welcome. I mean, all these sports and, I guess, recreational activities that we're talking about require a great deal of skill and insight That sure, you could probably teach yourself eventually, but being able to go to a clinic or get a mentor would absolutely shorten that learning curve drastically. And those are the kind of things that are very difficult for someone like myself to feel comfortable going out there and doing. The kind of thought process that goes through my head when I consider asking somebody to be a mentor or when I consider mentoring somebody really is are they going to get the wrong idea? Like, are they going to think that? I'm a gay man, you're a straight man, am I hitting on you by trying to make you my mentor? I mean, simple things like that are the kind of things that are constantly running through my head as I'm trying to process it and figure out how to approach the situation. And I mean, as much of it is concern over what they'll think of me as it is what they will, I guess, implicate upon the LGBTQ plus community because of me and because of who I am as a person. Because I could be the first exposure that they've had one-on-one with a gay individual. So I am constantly concerned about doing damage to my greater community as a whole. And the same is true even when I talk to the LGBTQ community about fly fishing or hunting or anything like that. Like, I don't want to misrepresent our community as recreationalists and potentially give a bad taste in the LGBTQ individuals' mouths about what we stand for. So it's really trying to grasp both those positions and really trying to, it's like I constantly have things running through my head about worrying about myself and how I could be um, misrepresented as well as how I could be misrepresenting the community that I am representing. So it's a tough one. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's a tough one. I, I can I can understand what you're saying and, and how tough it, it could be. And so like what I heard you say, it's like, one thing that's helpful just on an individual level for people that are friends and want to support our friends is just learn about the language that you use. Be be mindful about the language that you're using in very basic yes. terms, in terms of how you frame it and what your presumptions are behind that language, right? From yeah. a gender standpoint or sexuality standpoint. And then, you know, the importance of visualization and community In terms of like you hit on a really good point that I think is just critical. And that's if if I can't see myself out there, if I don't see like a mirror of myself out there through the visuals, through what I'm seeing in social media, what I'm seeing portrayed, then it's going to create a barrier for me to want to get out there or just know how to get out there. So like having access to community that's like me that I can feel safe with, that I can, I think they relate to me is really helpful and then it's like I could totally get what you're saying about the the balancing act between yourself and then how you're talking about the community and what you're representing
0: and the terminology is so tough like going back to that point I mean that's something that I as a gay man really did not I still don't fully grasp and I still constantly stumble upon my words and my terminology and things like that and I think that it's important to note both for both communities, for any community that you need to be understanding that people are going to make mistakes, but they're going to be trying. And the fact that they're trying should mean something and you shouldn't be hesitant to correct them. But the way in which you actually go about it is very important and it can have a long lasting effect on whether or not you'd be building an advocate or an adversary for that community. And I mean, for me going to the LGBTQ outdoor summit last year I was confronted the first day with somebody asking me what my pronouns are. And that's something that I had never heard of. I'd never presented and I'd never thought that I needed to present my pronouns. I thought it is clear that I'm a guy and that's about it. And learning more about people's use of pronouns and how they use them and the different pronouns that are out there. I mean, there are many people that identify themselves as the singular they, and I think that is something that seems strange in the English language at times, but when you actually look into it, it's something that's perfectly acceptable and works very well with syntax and should be something that is more commonly used because it's easier than writing he slash she or something Mm -hmm. like that when you're trying to refer to a number of people. In the same realm, I heard people starting to use the word queer in a positive sense and identify themselves as queer and that is not something that i was accustomed to Because growing up in a household that again was a very loving caring household they did use negative connotations for the gay community like fag queer or just use gay in a negative sense and Mm -hmm. use it as a more or less a verb or a adjective for lesser than. And that's something that really shaped me as a person in my thought process that has been hard to unwind. So I think that even though you may not mean harm in using some of those words in the particular way that people use them, I think it's still important to recognize that there are individuals that will be sensitive to that. And even though they may not show offense at the time, um, that's something that ends up shaping who they are and how they react.
1: Totally, and, and I started seeing more pronouns on Twitter, for instance, about i don 't know a year or two ago it, you know and and at first i didn 't really grasp what what it was all about, you know, and then and then it, I caught on it, but I think the terminology is is words and labels um, like anything else can be can be very helpful or it can be very harmful and hurtful and destructive, so it 's like choosing to be in a helpful way one thing, you know, there's so many terms out there. I was online the other day and just like from a sexuality standpoint, it's just like getting familiar with what's the difference between pansexual and bisexual, or what's the difference between transsexual and gay or anything like that. And so like learning that when people use language, that they're specific to that for a reason, you know? And so it's not just like very broad generic language, but there's some some definition to that and and how they're identifying, you know? So I think for listeners out there, being able to educate yourself a little bit and being sensitive and empathizing toward terminology and what means what to support your friends, I think go a long way as well. Most of us
0: are happy to help try to educate individuals that may not be a part of that specific group, but at the same time, it is a burden upon us and it does take A lot of emotional energy to be able to explain things again and again, or in my case, to be able to come out again and again to each person that I talk to and have to explain how myself being a gay man has specifically impacted my experience in the wild and how I interact with people that I come into contact with when we're in the outdoors. It's tough and it is a burden. So the more weight that you would take off our shoulders, the better. And I hate asking for that for my own benefit. But again, I know there's 15 million other people out there that I care enough about that I'm willing to speak up for that I can say, please educate yourself. Please try to be gender neutral when you're referring to an individual or when you're asking a person a question that you don't know it. I mean, obviously, if you know that they have a wife, you can ask about their wife. Um, But at the same time, if you're getting to know a person, it makes it such a more welcoming space if you don't put those automatic presumptions upon a person. I mean, I think we live in a world where I know that there's community for everybody. And I know that there's a space for everybody in any recreational activity we'd like to pursue. But I didn't know that five years ago. I did not feel like I had a place to go where I could be a gay man and be able to go hunting. And there would be straight men that would be willing to go hunting with me. I hunted alone just because I didn't want to have to deal with it. And I didn't want to have to have that fear or that like anxiety over the judgment um, that they'd be putting upon me. So any small little action you can take to try to make it a more welcoming place is going to be absolutely appreciated. And I don't think that anybody expects a person to be perfect. I think the fact that people are willing to speak about it and stumble over their words is very important. And that's part of the learning process. Yeah, it is part of
1: the learning process. And I can only imagine where it would be just exhausting to have to feel like you've got, it's like, here we go again. We've got to have this conversation again. You know, it's like after a while, it's like, good Lord. The outdoor summit that you were at sounds pretty, pretty yeah. cool. So like, tell us a little bit about how many people were there and like what you were trying to accomplish and where you're going with that as a community.
0: Yeah. Um, So it was an event put on by a group called pride outside as well as the venture out project. Um, So two LGBTQ outdoor centric groups or organizations. And it was really seeking to bring together. I think it was around 300 or so attendees Um, from all different areas of the outdoor space. So there were uh, representatives of different government agencies, like Colorado Parks and Recreation was there, Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was there, and then a bunch of nonprofits in both the the LGBTQ-centric space as well as just the general outdoor space, hoping to reach more within the community. And then they also had the um, outdoor more retail or uh, industry there as well. And it was a weekend really centered around workshops. So different individuals would present on, say, getting more college students into outdoor recreation um, that may come from the queer community. And in my case, I presented a workshop that was called Hunting for Acceptance that (laughs) really does kind of line up very well with Joshua's um, talk or his uh, piece that he wrote um, in that I really talked about grappling and trying to unload, I guess, the different struggles and um, roadblocks to both the LGBTQ or queer community getting into the hunting space and what was really stopping them from being more visible, or from taking it up and trying to get out there. And then on the same kind of sphere, I then we then spoke about and tried to unload the barriers to the hunting community, gaining acceptance within the LGBTQ community. Before I moved to Denver, I was in los angeles and i know that (laughs) whenever i would it was difficult to date down there i would say that much um i think that a lot of people would see a picture of me with a gun or with a dead animal and (laughs) immediately be revolted uh (laughs) there there were a few that were not so but i like i don't want to stereotype la or anything like that like it is they have a great hunting community down there too but more often than not, I think that people kind of gave me a crazy eye. It was very much <laughs> trying to talk about gaining acceptance in both those communities and the kind of the kind of things that we could be doing both as hunters and as queer individuals to get more of each in the other. <laughs> yeah. For as much as that makes sense. It makes
1: a lot of sense. And so you touched on barriers and um you you touched on the barriers that somebody maybe in an LGBTQ community might have toward getting into the hunting space, but also the, you had mentioned that the barriers like for the hunting community, what kind of themes or topics came up on the latter part of that? That's an important conversation.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think the number one is the hyper ultra masculinity um, that can be put forth by some social media personalities within the hunting community. Mm-hmm. They have a very wide following and I will not, not mention any names, but there are the main and most popular hunting personalities do put out that you got to be a man or you got to be a badass woman that's willing to go out there and bust ass to be able to actually put food on the table. And I think that the fact is most people are, weekend hunters or very like part-time hunters. And I think that can be very intimidating for a person to see that and to have to come in there like, well, I all are nothing. And then especially from the LGBTQ+ plus community, seeing that hyper masculinity can be very off-putting and often raise some fear um, because more often than not, and again, this is just my voice and my own personal experience, But the individuals that are usually opposed or have a certain hatred towards the queer community usually are those hyper-masculine individuals. So the number, and I'd say, I mean, that's the thing, it's tough because there's just not a number of individuals that have that wide breadth of reach within the hunting community that really do have, I guess... I don't want to say you need to have a soft, gentle voice or anything like that, but it's like the concentration on being a man and I guess enduring the suck, that's not something that resonates so well with the queer community. I mean, we've endured a lot of suck. So, I mean, we don't need to endure any more suck in the outdoors. We want to go out there. We want to have a good time. We're willing to put in the work, but at the same time, we need to have a, I guess, welcoming mat that shows that, no, we don't need to be epitomizing what it means to be a man in order to be able to be in this community and feel like we're a part of it. So obviously that should resonate with women as well and otherwise.
1: I agree 100%. Looking at what the average hunter or angler, why they're getting out, how often they're getting out in terms of like just driving that bro culture. We all know it. And it's just like, you know, in terms of like how we're going to get people outdoors, it's just not, it's not going to help, you know? So I'm glad you brought that up. What else do you want to talk about? This is Pride Month. We're in June here when we're recording this. Um, Anything cool going on with Pride Month, like in Denver?
0: I know that we're supposed to have uh, like a virtual Pride Parade or like a drive-through Pride Parade here in Denver this month. Um, I think that it's usually around Father's Day, but I haven't gotten much more information on that. Um, I know that something that I've been very encouraged by with the LGBTQ plus community, both here in Denver and elsewhere, has really been the gathering of support behind these protests um, that are going on right now with Black Lives Matter and everything else. So I think that as much of... Pride and supporting the queer community is important. I think that seeing that pride behind the queer community and getting behind those other people that are misrepresented has been just as big of a showing of pride. So that's been something that's been hugely heartening. But at the same time, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that we still have a long ways to go um, with the queer community. I mean, something that definitely impacted my more recent years has been my travels. I was with the Clinton Foundation after I finished law school for a year and I got the opportunity to travel and do work in a lot of Caribbean countries. And in places like Jamaica, I mean, there are still anti-buggery laws enacted that literally people can be killed for being gay And if they aren't killed under the law, they'll be killed by posses that form just because of public opinion. And in the U.S., I mean, there's only nine states. I think the last count is nine states that have actually enacted laws that will not recognize the more or less homophobic defense, but it's pretty much the gay defense where an individual either feels as if a gay man comes on to him, they could be justified in actually committing violence against that person. And that can be a defense that's brought in court from, again, I don't have the most recent numbers, but the last I saw, it should be around 41 states that defense is still permitted. Um, and that's just unacceptable to me. I mean, it's like, it, the fact is, it's like, if I have to be fearful, most Gay men will not hit on another person if they don't know that they are a part of their community. But at the same time, having that in the back of your head where if you do hit on the wrong person, if you do comment, wow, you look really nice today, and then you get punched in the face and that can be justified, um, it's not exactly the most heartening thing to think about. And, I mean, I I won't go into much on the non-binary or transgender side of things, just because that's a... uh, area that I'm not as well versed in or feel comfortable speaking for them too much on. But I know that that community definitely feels very underrepresented and that there's um, a long way to go as far as enacting protections under law to make sure that they aren't um, victimized.
1: 41 states. Holy smokes. I, I didn't know that. That's just, you just shake your head and I can't even, I don't know what to say about that. That's just nuts. It just needs to be fixed. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's something that, again, like, kind of goes to that bigger picture when I think about things and like what kind of shaped me growing up is that knowing that there are people out there that hate me for who I am, that sincerely hate me and would like me off this earth for being a gay man and that's all that they're able to see about me, it hurts. Like, I mean, and I mean, I'd love to be able to change all those people's minds and let them see who I am wholeheartedly. And that I am a good person outside of this, whether or not it may be a sin under their religion. But um I don't know. I don't know if we can ever get there, but I'll keep on fighting to
1: <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you shared that. Thank you for sharing that. But I want to talk a little bit about the wild gathering and some of the plans that you may have and some of the work that you may have, but I don't wanna like fast track this conversation or skip anything that you wanted to talk about that maybe I haven't asked just about in terms of LGBT. Anything else you want to cover on that before we talk about the cool stuff with Wild Gathering?
0: You know, I think that we had a really good talk about it. I mean, I think that, again, I just want to go back on the point that just be willing to have a conversation with people, be open-minded. I think that a lot of times we, as a queer individual, I know that I'm not always going to be able to go out with other people that represent themselves as LGBTQ+. But that's not necessarily important. Just knowing that people like me will have a safe place to go where they aren't going to be ostracized for their who they are is important. And again, just a call out to both individuals and the industry to really try to work on uh, being gender neutral as much as possible.
1: Yeah, I can, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank
0: you. I appreciate that. And, and oh, I know
1: what I was going to ask you too was like, are there any particular communities out there in social media that you feel are really doing a great job with inclusivity and getting people outdoors and feeling welcome, putting that welcome out that you're talking about.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, again, this isn't necessarily the queer community, but Brown folks fishing obviously is probably (laughs) one of my favorites actually. um, Just for wholeheartedly trying to get more diversity into the outdoors. Confluence collective is another great one uh, from the fly fishing space. And then there are a few different groups that are pretty new um, to the social media space that I'm happy to share offline, but I, they're still getting kind of started up and going. There aren't too many in the hunting space or anything like that yet um, that I feel comfortable throwing out there, but um, they're there and they're coming. So uh, be on the lookout.
1: There's there's a lot of work to be done. You know, I, I love Brown folks fishing and I reached out to Tracy Wen Chung probably well, it was probably last winter, sometime, and uh, I I saw her. Um, I think I saw her name through. It was an Outside magazine kind of like here's here's fifteen or twenty leaders that are just crushing it out there that you need to know about. And um, you know, I'm so thankful for the work they're doing. They're a great community, and they're just really setting the bar and doing things right. Uh, it's 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 good stuff. So let's talk then a little bit about the wild gathering and, and hunt to eat. And, uh, you know, so you're the executive director for wild gathering. Is that right?
0: Yes. That's, volunteer executive director. I okay. Well, you're yeah. Exactly, so I do on my so. spare time.
1: Okay. So tell us a little bit for listeners that aren't familiar with the wild gathering, uh, tell us a little sure. bit about what it is and sure. what you hope to do with it.
0: Yeah, so uh, it was started actually a few years back uh, by Monty Batellis, who is the owner of Hunt to Eat, the clothing company that I'm sure many of your listeners are accustomed with, and he really started it with a few other industry professionals. Um, it was a annual dinner and kind of roundtable discussion. Focused around outdoor retailer here in Denver that usually takes place in June, which brings together again um, industry professionals from every single outdoor sport you can imagine. There's mountain bikers, climbers, skiers, everything. Um, so, Montine's really vision was to bring together all these different recreational users around the table to share a meal of wildly gathered food. Um, And to talk about conservation and where there's common ground and where we can be pushing um, for conservation wins as a whole. Because I feel like so often the hunting community or the fishing community is left out of some of those conversations on the quote-unquote non-consumptive recreational side. Mountain bikers are often uh, either uncomfortable or hesitant to associate with hunters. And we really wanted to try, or he really wanted to try to reshape that conversation and to bring everybody to the table because obviously a unified voice of a million will be much more powerful than a bunch of individual voices coming at them. Uh, So they did that for two years or so in a row, kind of with that same model. And then this past year, I worked with Montine and my prior law firm in Los Angeles to get the Wild Gathering officially recognized as a 501c3. Um, Since then, it's really just been in kind of new startup stages, getting websites going, getting a board of directors, and things like that, but informing our mission and our upcoming objectives. um, Of course, we were excited to host another dinner at Outdoor Retailer this year, but Outdoor Retailer has been canceled. Um, due to COVID so we are now going at it from a virtual wild gathering front and personally as executive director I've been really trying to lean towards the equity and inclusion side of things Uh, but we have a great talk lined up with uh, Jenna Roselle and Courtney Nicholson that I'll be talking about foraging and then I'm hoping to put together a panel on equity and inclusion and some of the efforts that we can be going to both as a conservation community and then just from the outdoor industry side as well and how it can really be more inclusive um, both in wildlife conservation, public lands, which I know is a very controversial term. So I'm hoping to get uh, a bunch of indigenous individuals uh, represented there as well, because that's been a conversation that I feel like they've been left out of. Uh, So In whole, that's kind of our plan for the next month, but then moving forward, and as hopefully restrictions lift, we hope to be uh, rolling out a number of different small gatherings um, throughout the country um, in different areas. And again, it'll be really connected to where our community is, but there'll be skills building, there'll be workshops, there'll be dinners and things like that in individual and smaller spaces, And then hopefully still um, next year, we may be able to host that in-person larger um, wild gathering event that hopefully will be expanded from just a dinner into a whole series of panels um, hosted throughout the evenings during Outdoor Retailer. And uh, I mean, more or less, it's still sticking by that kind of initial startup um, mentality that Monty and the other founders had in really trying to just build community around conservation and trying to bring more people to the table, trying to amplify new voices and more diverse voices. But then kind of the, uh, I guess, the underlying objective of my own is really trying to reshape what it means to be a hunter, what it means to be an angler, and what it means to be a conservationist and a part of this community. Um, Since those really are my, particular specialties and where I view myself as part of
1: it you know the aspect of bringing together people around food to have conversations and to build community outside of our traditional communities within hunters and angler groups and then it's so important to to find those commonalities because uh, as we've seen over the last several years the way the political fabric's been and the controversies around our public lands no one group is going to do it on their own and as hunters and anglers as our numbers are declining you know we need to maintain our relevancy we have this great history we have this great legacy we support conservation in so many ways through funding and getting out there and doing habitat work and and hunting Um, but to be able to maintain that relevancy we need to reach out with an olive branch and just as much as like some mountain biking groups or maybe hiking groups might be kind of leery to reach out to hunters and anglers. Sometimes as hunters and anglers, we like to stay within our own tribes as well. You know, we're like, hey, we're the ones driving the North American conservation model. And so we celebrate those victories, uh, but we also could benefit from just just remembering that as leaders, we have an opportunity to build community outside of just our, our particular user group. So we can use that opportunity and it will benefit everybody or we can lose that opportunity. And so what I see this is, this is an opportunity that's being used and embraced. And I see good things ahead with it. One more question, then we can wrap up. We were talking about Joshua Morrison and uh, and Jess Johnson, right? So, you know, in that that piece that Joshua wrote, uh, he wrote about Jess coming to from Wyoming to Vermont for that whole Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Pint Night. You recently... Did you hunt with Jess or was it a fishing trip or something? Like several months ago, I think I saw you we were in Wyoming and or maybe it was more recent than that, but what were you and Jess up to outdoors?
0: Yeah, so uh, I met Jess Johnson at the last BHA rendezvous and we've been connected ever since. So I ended up flying out to Wyoming over my winter break. So I spent about a week there Um, She put me up at her place in Lander, and we did. We went out hunting for rabbits unsuccessfully. We went out fly fishing for trout, and I taught her how to use a tenkara rod, which was absolutely awesome. Uh, And I hooked a couple fish and lost them, so I guess I can call that unsuccessful as well. Uh, But for the most part, we cooked an absolutely incredible meal for about... 10 of her close friends in the area um, that I think ranged from, I brought out some duck. I just flew out from, I was in Oregon with family and I got to shoot a few limits of ducks. So I brought those over with us, rendered down the fat. Um, (laughs) We drank (laughs) that like liquid gold. And I think that I also brought maybe, I think it was mostly just duck, but she had moose. She had uh, some of her doll sheep from the hunt up in, uh, Alaska that she brought. And uh, we kind of just went absolutely crazy cooking all different kinds of random dishes. I think I did like roast smoke duck. I did duck breast. I did, I did some sort of tartar. I just can't remember what kind. We had a full list of pretty much menu items that was just exposing these people in Lander that sure, they probably eaten wild game before, but it really was a wild feast, for lack of a uh, better word. That was probably one of the best nights. But then uh, from there, we just kind of explored and just enjoyed the great outdoors and uh, discussed some of the tough things facing our community and where we can do better. And uh, having an advocate like Jess on my side and there to voice support in that community has been so heartening and so encouraging and just definitely increases the, any courage that I was lacking, I'd say previously. So people like Jess are, um, there can't be enough of them. That's for darn sure. I admire her so much
1: on so many levels for the, I mean, she does amazing work and she's such a cool person and, uh, that sounds like so much fun. That's great.
0: It was a blast. Yeah.
1: So what do you think wrapping up, um, any, any thoughts, anything we didn't touch on anything, you're looking forward to, how people can find you, anything like that?
0: Sure. So Wild Gathering is online. We have a very bare website, but you can sign up for our newsletter and more information. It's thewildgathering.org. Pretty darn easy. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. You just search and it'll pop up. I am currently on Instagram at Justin Bubenick. There you will find a variety of adorable puppy pictures, uh, fly fishing pictures, hunting pictures, and propaganda about any workshops or upcoming things uh, that I may be doing. Mostly just trying to put a smile on people's faces. Don't take anything I post too seriously. Um, I do get into some deeper conversations every once in a while, but it really is put out there with a big and open heart, and uh, I always welcome conversations with individuals looking to learn more, more about me and my path and uh, how I really got to a place where I feel like I have a sense of belonging in uh, both the LGBTQ and the hunting and fishing community.
1: Puppy posts are awesome. And they bring a smile to my face and I always look forward to them. So, Hey, listen, he's
0: adorable.
1: Yeah, I know big time, uh, big time. So, okay. It's a pleasure having you on the podcast, Justin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being a voice. Um, I'm going to just say to people out there, just to reiterate, just put your welcome mats out folks. And, and, you know, like, we talk about inclusivity and like, there's so much, like we started this conversation within the, I think within the framework of all the pain and all the divisiveness and, and all the backlash that's come out of the George Floyd murder and just like the bigger picture of things, like of just, um, how, how stressful it's been for life for people. Um, but like, I think that in terms of, um, Finding some inclusivity, like finding some, some commonality in the outdoors as a way to bring people together and, and opening your arms and opening your hearts to be able to invite people to come out and hunt and fish with you and to share your knowledge and to just educate yourself to be supportive and educate yourself to have meaningful conversations with new hunters and anglers Um, regardless of their background, I think is is so important. And so that's what we're all about. That's what we're trying to encourage. And um, I really appreciate catching up. It's been awesome.
0: It's been great talking, Todd. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.